Welcome to She Critiques, where we discuss the new, the old, all things cinema. I'm Mercedes, television producer, certified reviewer, and all-around movie buff. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode, everyone. I am so excited for this episode this week. I love the show Lovecraft Country. If you are not hip to HBO's Lovecraft Country, get on your mark. It is one of the best shows on television, and I'm glued to my television each and every Sunday to catch up on these characters and their breakdown and just dive into the mind of the genius creator that is Misha Green. Um, This week on the podcast, I have a writer from the show, Shannon Houston joining to discuss all things Lovecraft Country, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the She Critiques podcast. I'm so elated to have you. Like, I listened to the podcast on HBO, and I watched the show Lovecraft Country. I'm a huge fan, so this is like, I think you only get nervous when it's like something that you want to do, and it's people who... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god like oh my god spike lee like when someone else might so so happy to have you um let me introduce the people to who you are shannon, yes. houston. shannon houston is a poet a critic and tv writer her work has been heavily influenced by her strange times coming of age in boston cleveland and new york Houston graduated from Sarah Lawrence College in 2011 and went on to become a pop culture writer and TV and film critic. In 2016, Houston transitioned to the TV world after selling a pilot to Amazon. She has since written on Hulu's The Looming Tower, Amazon's Homecoming, Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere, HBO Max's Station Eleven, and HBO's Lovecraft Country. Her passions include visual art, music, baby making, and Black women up to no good. She lives in Southern California with her three children and their beloved turtle, Miss Shannon Houston. Welcome to the She Critiques podcast. That's a virtual. Thank you. I'm so excited. Absolutely. I was going to start somewhere else, but the line that struck me in this bio was Black women up to no good. So I got to go there. What does Black women up to no good look like? I mean, you saw it. You saw Lovecraft Country, you know. It's, I, I love these women who do what the fuck they want, really, to be honest. Um, I love characters who take risks. I love characters who go on adventures. Um, my passion is definitely writing female and or femme characters who don't play by the rules. And I think as television and film is opening up to more black stories and black female centered stories I do think that there's going to be that danger of only telling stories where we look good only telling stories where we do the right thing and so I'm really excited about more stories where we do crazy things where we don't make all the right decisions where we stay in the multiverse and don't go home to our kids so uh, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about yeah, so you sound like a breaker of rule, so to speak. Breaker, a rule breaker, I would get, yeah. I try to break as many rules as I can. All my favorite heroes broke a lot of rules. All my favorite women do. So yeah, I would like to do that. I love that. And I love to see Black women breaking rules on screen. It kind of gives us the, 
the open door to kind of in our own lives just kind of been the been the wire a little bit absolutely so so my original introduction for this episode was gonna kind of dive into who um howard phillips lovecraft was because i did a little research just a little bit but i'm sure Mm -hmm. you know more than i do that was another intimidating factor your podcast is so good i'm like (laughs) (laughs) these ladies are smart smart with a capital c (laughs) but um H.P. Lovecraft, he was an American horror writer in the early 1900s who was clearly a white supremacist and a racist. Um, And although his work has inspired very prominent filmmakers today, um, Ridley Scott, Stephen King, Mm -hmm. Guillermo Tormo actually said something as well that he inspired him. So my question is more so, do we hold our artists accountable for who they are and not judge their art because I do feel like in society right now we kind of get in that limbo too where we love the art from the artist but then mm-hmm. we find out who they are and it's like ooh. so how do we yeah. hold artists accountable I think you can do a lot of things at one time you can acknowledge that you like R. Kelly's songs <laughs> and then you can go yeah it was all there that that all those awful things that you did explains a lot of lyrics in the songs that we loved and some people like me I don't listen to R. Kelly anymore it hurts there are certain songs where I'm like I really wish I could play this right now um then there's also that rabbit hole of well he wrote so many songs too so you're listening to other artists that you know like so it's it's not that it's not complicated, but I'm like, but you can do both of those things at once. You can say, damn, I love those songs. Damn, those influenced me in a lot of ways and I don't want to listen to them anymore or I can't listen to them anymore. Um, maybe some people have found a way to listen to the songs but still uh, fight against male supremacy and the patriarchy and rapists, you know? So, So I don't think that there's one way to do it, but I'm like, you can acknowledge that Lovecraft was an incredible writer whose work is the foundation of cosmic horror and he's a racist. Um, we have to do this in history. We have to do this with politicians. We have to do this with like so many American quote unquote heroes. So I think we need to all find a way to talk about a lot of different things at once and to let them be complicated too. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess is that tribute to Misha Green for naming the show Lovecraft Country? Is that? Well, Misha's show is named Lovecraft Country because the book by Matt Roth is called Lovecraft Country. And, and Matt Roth, as a white guy, was also trying to acknowledge, like, yes, we love H.P. Lovecraft. He built these worlds, or we should, I should say, we love the work that mm-hmm. he has done and also acknowledging that there's racism in that work of course there is you know that's why we read the poem on the podcast because it's like it's not escapable you can't sit here and say that a racist can create something that's wonderful and beautiful but has no tinges of that racism in there of course it's in there so matt Roth wrote the book you know grappling with that and then misha makes the show that's grappling with the book that's grappling with the legacy and you know lots of other things so they're all it is a strange thing because they are all in conversation with each other but that feels very true to this country that feels very true to 
the way America works. Well, <laughs> so when this came across your desk, this idea of Lovecraft Country, what was the initial thought behind getting behind this and wanting to be a part of the, the project? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't complicated. I watched Underground. I was a huge fan of Underground. I wrote uh, reviews of Underground when I was a TV critic and editor at Paste Magazine. So I was like, whatever Misha Green is doing, the fact that it's coming across my desk is, uh, you know, an honor in and of itself. And then I read the script and I loved what she was doing. And I was also scared. I was totally like, this is insane. Um... <laughs> It's scary, and I don't really do scary that much, so I don't even know if I'm right for it, but I could see that she was doing this thing that I love where she takes a really big story and then she makes it about family. Mm -hmm. um, and Underground was about, obviously, like a group of enslaved people trying to escape. And it was also about complicated family relationships and dynamics during that time. And that's not easy to do. That's something that you do if you really care about characters and you really understand that characters drive the story. So I saw that very clearly in the pilot that I read. And I, and I knew from watching Underground that she was going to go to some crazy places. And I was excited and scared, 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 yep. All of that to be along for the ride. I was like, this is gonna really push me and it did. And it was a, a great experience. Absolutely. Um, what does Misha's leadership look like in the writer's room? Like, I wanna be a fly on the wall in that writer's yes. room so bad, like just to see what these conversations look like. I would describe her as that professor in college who is like riding you, who's like sees your potential and is like, oh yeah, you have the potential to be, to, to do X, Y, and Z, but you're scared or you're holding back. You're not pushing yourself. Let me help you out. And those are always my favorite professors. Um, and so that's how it was with her. I think it's, gonna sound a little cheesy but I I refer to her as my beyond say mm -hmm. my person out in the cosmos who's like you're not in a prison <laughs> you're here to grow and to learn and to go on an epic adventure and to me that's how she is and she, the way that she thinks is so like otherworldly sometimes that it's it can be frightening and uncomfortable like and that's the experience that you have watching the show you're like this is yeah. very strange and uncomfortable. Wait, no, I'm having fun. Wait, no, I don't like that. Like all of those emotions were felt on a daily basis in that room. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. I would do it a million times over with her. Like she's just so incredible. And I think it is that thing of coming out of that room. I'm like, I can't, I'm again, like, I can't believe I was a part of it. I'm so excited that I was even in there like pitching both really bad ideas and a few really good ideas. Out of the uh, bad ones, so. it, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was great. Um, you were talking a little bit about the characters as well and like they're layering, they're layered so well. Like I feel like each episode we learn just a little bit about mm -hmm. each of them that takes us into the next episode. One of my favorite characters to watch in the show is Ruby. Like mm -hmm. I don't, something about Ruby for me is like, her strength and resilience but she's also very soft mm -hmm. and vulnerable sometimes yeah. so that's like this duality of who she is 
Yeah. But so I was going to say, um, because I recognize for me in the finale, it almost seems like Ruby was willing to sacrifice um, her love with Christina for almost like an acceptance in a love with Letty. And yeah. And analysis. And since I have you, I want to be correct. So <laughs> am I anywhere near correct on that one? I think, I think Ruby wanted it all. I think in Ruby's perfect world, she would have been able to stay with Christina, learn magic, do crazy things. And she would have been able to protect Letty. And so I think she's torn at the cemetery when Letty is like, um, asking for her help. Maybe she's not torn. Ruby's just like, go fuck yourself. Can we swear on this? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's encouraged. Ruby's like, go fuck yourself. Um, and we talked about this in the room. What I, lo what I love about Ruby is a selfish character. Not necessarily, maybe selfish is the bad word, but like out for self, a person who's like, no, I'm going to put myself first. And we talk about this concept all the time. We talk about self-care. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm like, Ruby really was like, from the beginning, from the pilot, like this, our family is troubled. Letty, you have issues. You run around. I support you. I'm the responsible one. Like she's, but she's always taken care of herself. And I love that about her. And like you said, there's also though this vulnerability there. Like she can be hurt. She's not um she's she's not immune to the things that letty does in episode three when letty lies to her about where the money came from for the, for the house that really does hurt ruby they don't speak for a while so i love that about her and yes i think i think in the cemetery scene she's like and notice i keep saying i think because i'm like it's complicated i have my own opinion about what's happening in a scene too but that scene to me is is Letty saying, I need you to make I need you to make one more sacrifice for this family. And Ruby's like, I understand you've gone on some kind of spiritual journey, <laughs> but I'm here. I'm where I've always been. I've always been out for this family. Oh, now you want us all to come. It's that same thing of like, but you're still asking me to sacrifice something and I have to break up with the person I'm with, or I have to go behind her back. And your boyfriend is kind of trash too. Like, right. Right. So it's like, I don't want to do that. And then I think when she gets back to the room with Christina, that's a complicated scene too. Cause on the one hand, I think there is real romance between the two of them. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think Ruby is like, I don't want anything to happen to my sister. And I do want to help her. Like there is something wrong with the fact that my girlfriend wants to kill her boyfriend to ascend, you know, it's yes. But yes, I think in the end she goes, all right, let me make a choice. And the choice is to steal the, the stuff, the yes. potion for, um, for Letty and it goes awry. So, but I don't know if it's as simple as, okay, I'm on Letty's side now and not Christina, you know, like we have to let people be complicated. It's hard to choose your family sometimes, especially Girl. when that's <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> so that's what Ruby's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned too with Tick kind of being not the best boyfriend. So the thing is, okay, everybody's obsessed with Jonathan Majors. I mean, come on, let's go. Um, let's I mean, listen, <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, but so I actually I follow Demetria Lucas on Instagram. Okay. She does some really interesting um, feedback for each episode of Lovecraft. And she's a part of a Facebook group. I'm going to read you this, right? She's a part okay. of a Facebook group who discusses each episode every week. And 
the topic for that week was, um, is Ruby jealous of Letty and Tick's relationship? And the women were going back and forth like, no, she's not jealous. And then one woman said, jealous of what? <laughs> okay, read it. A good man where Tick is unemployed and living off Letty in her house. And he knocked her up with no ring in the 50s. And he called his ex <laughs> in Korea, the lady that he <laughs> wined and dined and popped up at Letty and she popped up at Letty's house and even took Letty, hasn't even taken Letty on a proper date and she's pregnant. He doesn't communicate right and he has anger issues. Letty is hanging around with a magical Negro who already got her killed once and nearly gets her killed every episode. Who the fuck is jealous of that? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Here's the thing. That is exactly how Ruby feels. Ruby is like, wait, I'm supposed to do what for who? Um, well, I think that's exactly Ruby's perspective. And also, yes, we would talk about this in the room all the time. We would be like, he does not even have a job. Um, I was very upset. He's in her house. He's making long distance calls. I was very upset about that. We know he has to call Korea, but who's paying the bill? These are valid questions. I love that. I love that perspective. I also love, you know, there's also the perspective of something that's a hard truth, which is when you meet somebody, you're meeting them at that stage in their life, mm -hmm. right? So Letty can't have the Atticus that we saw in Korea because he's not that person anymore. After everything right. he's experienced, after he had a tra traumatic experience with his first love, she's now getting that version of that guy. Mm -hmm. And that kind of does suck for Letty, um, but she's on an adventure with him in a very different way than what Gia was having in episode six. So no, I also agree. I don't think Ruby is jealous of, of <laughs> Letty and Atticus at all. Um, I don't like to squash any fan theories because again, right. that's the point of the show to get you like, you're emotional, you take sides. So I respect that camp. <laughs> but I'm on, Ruby is very settled into who she is. Like, mm -hmm. you know, any version of the story where you think we were telling a story about a Black woman who isn't happy to be Black, we specifically put lines in throughout the series to let you know she's very confident in the way she looks. She's very confident in her body. There's no, you know, this is the 50s. That's a bombshell right there. Um, and, and so we are telling a complicated story about that woman who, who actually does love herself and it gets complicated, right? Because we don't live in a world that really wants a beautiful black woman to love herself. Absolutely. Um, and that's what she's bucking up against. Not her own feelings about who she is, not her own lack of love. Like Ruby's been having a great love life. As far as I'm concerned, from the time we meet her to before then, like she's not lacking in that area. She's not lacking in attention. Um, she's not lacking in people throwing themselves at her. Again, we don't, you know, this is the Ruby in my head that we, that exists before the show starts. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, I don't think that it's, it's that. And we've talked a lot too about, you know, again, in the world of don't simplify the story. You can have two sisters who are both happy in their lives, technically, like, of course, our characters are going on a journey, but like, they don't have to be jealous of each other. Right. per se for there to be tension it can just be i'm tired of being the responsible one you do whatever you want i don't feel supported 
uh, you're selfish like mom. No, you're selfish like mom. You know, like there's a lot that can go on that doesn't necessarily have to do with jealousy per se. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. I think um, Ruby is the most explorative female, I think, on the show. Like just willing to put her toe in a lot of different waters. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I give that. Kudos to that. And um, yeah, nobody... Never mind. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, Tick, you know, piggybacking off of a lot of, you know, a Black woman and, and holding her accountable for what he's experienced in the past is not a new story for a lot of Black men. Okay. But that's that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yes, all of that. All yes. Of that. Um, and then moving on to D for me, that's the last character I really kind of wanted to come through a little bit because for me, D is so representative of like black children who aren't necessarily like we want to protect them, but we can't protect them in a way. Mm -hmm. And they have to grow up so fast. Like our black black children to me are forced to grow up very fast and make decisions very early on. Um, and they just don't have the luxury of leisure. It's just not afforded in that capacity. Some, but um, I guess the question is. Was it structured like that purposely for that type of narrative? What, what, what like, what was the con the con what were you trying to convey? Yes, on the one hand, yes, absolutely. I think what what we're saying is, of course, black children play because all children play. That's how they communicate. Of course, they have fun. All children have fun. Though the way that that fun and that leisure and pleasure is complicated by racism and sexism. It's the Ruby idea of it's there's actually nothing complicated about being a black child until you're a black child in America mm -hmm. in, you know, with all of the weight of that. But the actual innate, whatever is innately true of children is true of black children. And then we put them in this country and it's very, they're interrupted constantly. Right. So, so I think that that's part of the story that we're telling. Like, yes, in a perfect world, Diana would just draw comics all the time and she would grow up to be an artist um, and very early on that's complicated. And I think, you know, people forget how much Diana went through because we didn't focus on her as much throughout the first few episodes, but you're like, episode two, her dad dies. Um, episode three, she has a weird encounter with a Ouija board um, where she's like, is my dad a ghost? Like she, like Hippolyta, I think she's sensing there's something that I don't know about what happened to my dad. Then her mom is losing it because her mom is like, oh, I know they're lying. And, you know, so you have those moments where she's like, mom, mom, what are we doing? Why aren't we going back to Chicago? Where, where are we? So she went through a lot. Her mom is then not there physically present for her at another huge blow, which is losing her best friend, Bobo. And then she gets chased by two devil dolls. Like she hasn't, she's assaulted <laughs> by the police. I'm like, I know in a, in a different show, she would have been painting at the end of the series and she yeah. would have, you know, gotten to be free in the way that we like to think of our black children as free. But this is Lovecraft Country. This is a very different kind of show. So what we envision for 
um, a, an empowering moment for her is complicated, right? It's this final scene and she makes a strong choice. And what right. we're saying is she makes that choice because of everything she's experienced over these 10 episodes, yeah. which is like a lot of violence at the hands of white people. And in particular, her best friend being dead because of the words of a white woman. What do you think she's going to do with that robot arm? So this is also like, <laughs> Again, the daughter of Hippolyta. Hippolyta has now told her, you can literally be anything, yes. do anything. I've seen it. I'm here to show you. So she has a different type of Black mother now than the mother she had in episode one. And all of that, all of that is important. And so, yes, I think on the one hand, there's, there's a tragedy, right? That, we, that if we just want our little Black kids to just be little Black kids and not ever have to think big thoughts or make... Um, strong choices, we're not really going to get that a lot of the time in this present day America. Um, but the alternative isn't necessarily bad. The alternative could be exciting if we let it be. We also are telling a story about how it is always the young people. It's always the young people moving a movement. It's never, mm -hmm. the truth is, even us in our 30s and 40s, it's not us because we get settled. Firing us, yeah. Yes, we have kids, we have families to think about. Like it has to be, it always has to come from the younger generation. So I think we were trying to tell that story too. Absolutely. Um, you talking about Hippolyta, because I know you were the head writer for episode seven, I am yes. centering- Co-writer with Nisha, yes. Okay. Co-writer, um, but centering Hippolyta in her journey of identifying herself. What was that, what was the approach to that episode? And then birthing that as well. What was, was there any painful in birthing that episode? Anything painful? Everything, every episode was painful to birth. <laughs> you know, every episode had really tough, complicated things where we were, um, you know, arguing passionately in the room about things. So every, I always say that to the fans who are like, oh, I don't know how to feel about this. I'm like, same same you know like it's not that's that's kind of the point so so yes it was it was hard because we wanted to tell the story basically we wanted to tell the story of her going through therapy Hippolyta has been through and all of our characters right they've all been through a particular trauma and then we want to show how they work with it and through that trauma mm -hmm. and so Hippolyta has been through a lot and we also wanted to we were constantly asking ourselves how can we get away from the very simple narrative of like what racism looks like? Because in television, in film, in so many of our stories, racism is a man swinging from a noose. Mm -hmm. uh, racism is the police shooting somebody in the back. Um, it's never what Hippolyte is describing in Paris, which is like, I actually have exactly what I thought I wanted. I had that. I had a family. I had my husband that I was helping run a nice business that was helping our community. Like I technically had everything that was supposed to make me happy. So why was I so angry? And the answer is, well, the answer is racism. The, the answer is still racism, but it just looks a, a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Nobody, you know, we talked about aversion. I had said to Misha once, I was like, well, maybe when she was younger, she grew up in the South and she saw a lynching and um Misha was like 
no, we don't need to do that. Like we need to give it more nuance, basically. Like what's the other version of racism that isn't that obvious thing that we always go to? Oh, it's a middle-class black woman who is actually a genius who not, it's not even necessarily that she should have been a scientist. It's that she should be, yeah, you're shrinking yourself. And also everybody around you is helping you shrink, but it's like, you should have been anything, but you couldn't even imagine that. And you were cut down in little ways, like trying to name a comet and marrying a man who loves you, but also is very comfortable with you just staying at home and all of those things. So, so it was difficult to get to like those complicated things and to also want to be able to talk about sexism and to say like, we have this amazing character in George Freeman and also he was complicit too. Yes, we love George. We love the characters, but they're all, none of them are perfect, you know? So, so that scene between George and Hippolyta was, was tough because we wanted it to be romantic. We wanted the audience to like feel so happy that George was back. And we wanted Hippolyta to have that moment of like, thank you, God, because that's a big part of grief. I just want to see this person one more time. I just want to wake up to them one more time. So we wanted all of that. And then we also wanted her to say, but you were a part of shrinking me. And that's partly how I ended up here. And where do we go from here? So we wanted it to do a lot of different things. And, and that, wasn't, that wasn't simple to do. But I'm excited because I do think that people got it. And I think, again, to the question you asked earlier about Lovecraft, it's like, people go, well, how can, how can we talk about this and talk about this at the same time? How do we acknowledge this and acknowledge this? And it's like, that's a great example of a scene that does that, where it's like, I love you. I missed you. You're my everything. And you did something deeply, deeply wrong. Yeah. we need to unpack that. Um, Is that not every therapy session? You're like, okay, I need to confront this person because- (laughs) Yes. Yes, I hear you. So I have a few rapid fire questions, kind of like a lightning round. Sure. Really quick. So your most, your, in your opinion, the most polarizing episode in Lovecraft Country episode, season one. Polarizing episode. I mean, I would have to go with five. Okay. For me, polarizing. Okay. Favorite actor to watch execute a scene. Doesn't have to be on Lovecraft though. I mean, Journey, <laughs> Journey Smollett. As He's like, amazing in this. Uh, it's period, but this is like so many incredible performances, and I it it's unfair to ask me to choose one because actually every single character ran through my head. I thought of Montrose in episode nine. I thought of Hippolyte in episode seven. Like the answer is technically all of them, but when Letty does the exorcism. Mm-hmm you're like, oh, you just, you, that's not acting. You are really this person. Like you can pull that from inside of you. So yes, Journey Smollett. You even saying that, um, thinking of every different character, this is a sidebar, but I just did an episode on Waiting to Exhale and we were talking about those women and did mm-hmm. they know 20 years from now that that cast was so mag- magnificent. And I think with the cast that you have in Lovecraft is like, 20 years I mean you already know this that's the crazy thing so I wonder if people who are making like magical art at the time you know that it's magical when you're touching it 
like when it's just tangible right there yeah I think it's it's yes and no like in the room in the writer's room I'm like this is gonna be crazy and then when I actually saw started seeing the episodes I was like oh my god this is literally this is 10 times what I what we thought it was or what I thought it was in the room and then you see you see it again through the eyes of the audience so I always say that too something a thing that you've worked on is constantly evolving it it's not going to mean the same thing in five years it'll mean something else in 10 years and I think that's I think that is proof that you've made something powerful and I think that that's true of this show yes favorite horror film (laughs) I'm gonna say and I'm I'm still newly diving into horror, so there's so much that I haven't seen. But one movie that took my breath away that I think about all the time is The Witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it came out a few years ago. Um, and that one was like, I just felt so a part of that creepy world. I felt so invested in these creepy characters. And then the ending, like... I just, yeah, that's, that's one of my top ones. I also love along the lines of like what my taste is. There was a movie called Prevenge, which is about a pregnant woman going on a murder spree um, as she's like (laughs) come with grief. And I just loved it. Okay. I'll check that out. (laughs) Uh, Will there be a season two of Lovecraft Country? I gotta ask the people you you do know people will kick me if I did not ask. You have to ask. Um we don't know yet. I don't I'll say I don't know yet. Let's say that. I don't know yet. Um I think we asked Misha on the podcast what should they what should everybody watch after Lovecraft season one? And she said Lovecraft season one. And I think that that gives me comfort i'm like there's so much in season one you could just watch it again i'm gonna listen and feel like you're watching a completely different show so i recommend doing that and you know we'll see what happens i will say the podcast by far is like it just goes hand in hand for me like i have to watch my sunday night episode of lovecraft and then i have to turn into the podcast because for me it just fills in if there was a blank sometimes i'm watching it and i'm so in awe I lose myself in the story and I don't know what I just watched. So the podcast like reiterates like, oh yes. Yes. (laughs) I know that. What do you want us to take away from Love Power Country? No one particular thing. No one particular thing. Like if there was one scene that you can't get out of your head, that's Mm -hmm. it. Take that scene, go build something from that. Like I'm all, as an artist, I would be honored to be a part of anything that's inspiring other artists. That's why I post so much fan art because it's like, I love that. I love, I'm more excited about the stories that people will tell after having seen this. The, The, I guess I would say, I hope that people feel a little freer to tell whatever weird ass, strange ass story that's been swirling around in their head. And if we've opened the door even a little bit for that, then I'll be happy. But just feeling, I just hope people feel more free to tell those stories and to, to, you know, do whatever needs to be done, go through whatever multiverse you need to go through to have that strength to keep making things and to keep doing things. Because 
as much as we packed into this, we touched like it's the tip of the iceberg for the millions of stories that black creatives could be telling right now. So I'm just excited to see what everybody does. Thank you so much. Thank you. I slid in your DM and you were a real one. Like, yeah, what's up, girl? <laughs> like, I was like, what? Oh, she was. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest anybody else do that. I'm just saying. It I was like, I'm like, I got a lot of unread DMs. I will get to them. Um, but yes, I was excited to hear from you. And I'm so excited to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You as well. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of She Critiques. I'm your host, Mercedes. You can find me on all platforms at She Critiques. That's C-H-I-C-C-R-I-T-I-Q-U-E-S. And we look forward to the engagement and all the feedback. Take care.